0: Hi, this is Rob Minkoff, director of The Lion King, and you're listening to The Skull Rock Podcast. Here's Skull Rock Podcast on Spotify, Anchor FM, iHeart Radio, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and now Audible and Amazon Music. Alexa, play Skull Rock Podcast.
1: Playing Skull Rock Podcast from Amazon Music. Podcast talking all things
2: Disney with your hosts Al John Go and Dave Bossert.
0: Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast. If this is your first time hearing the show. Welcome. Every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much more. I am your co-host Al John Go, lifelong musician. Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. And you can contact me at Aljon, A-L-J-O-N at SkullrockPodcast.com
1: And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And now, we can be found on Amazon Music and Audible. Like and follow us on Facebook, twitter instagram and linkedin and you can also email me at dave at skull podcast.com
0: al john how are you i'm doing well it is a uh, summertime in full swing here spending some time at the pool with the fam And uh, the little ones are learning how to float.
1: I love it. Fantastic. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, I have to tell you, the last time I was in a movie theater was February 16th, 2020, until last Sunday. Right. Uh, I went on Memorial Day weekend to the movies and saw A Quiet Place 2 in IMAX. Mm -hmm. Which was absolutely fantastic. Kudos to them for making a great movie. A lot of fun to watch, and also great sound. I mean, you know, everybody's got to be quiet in that film. And, you know, that because, you know, making noise is what attracts these creatures. And (laughs) uh, I mean, they just really did a fabulous job. It was a wonderful film to see for the first time uh, in well, over a year, well over a year of not going to the movies. And I not only saw A Quiet Place Al John, but I also went or I think it was on Wednesday uh, of last week to see. Cruella on the big screen. And I mean, talk about a terrific movie. I mean, Emma Stone blows it out of the park. Yeah. And, uh, and I have to tell you, you know, I I have to give just a shout out. Kudos to the uh, uh, music executive on the film. Uh, Great soundtrack, uh, great production design. I'll tell you who, who was a surprise to me. Uh, an actor that you may not have heard of, or you maybe have, Paul Walter Hauser. No,
0: I have not, not heard. Okay, of.
1: so you know he was the star of Clint Eastwood's film Richard Jewell, right? If you remember the the guy that plays the security guard that discovers the bomb in Atlanta during the Olympics, right? Yes. That's Paul Walker Hauser. And he plays um, uh, one of the the two sidekicks for Emma Stone's Cruella. Yes. Uh, uh, You've got uh, Horace and Jasper, right? Uh, Jasper is played by Joel Fry. And Horace is played by Paul Walter Hauser and absolutely fantastic. He's a great character actor. I mean, I really enjoyed his performance in this film and nice. just
0: all around the film was great. I'm just hoping that the uh, people go out and, and experience the film the way it's meant to be seen, you know, on the big screen. Absolutely. On the big
1: screen. It felt good being in the theater. I felt completely safe. Um, And, um, you know, it was was just really great to see a movie on the big screen, both Quiet Place and uh, Cruella. Uh, Two thumbs up for me uh, on both of those films. And I hope people go out and
0: and have a chance to see them. And I tell you what, looking forward to our guest as well. You've got uh, another great guest coming in.
1: Oh, my. We've got an incredible uh, uh, artist, director, writer, Jerry Reese. He's in the uh, green room, uh, pensively waiting to come on the show (laughs) shortly. Uh, And uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with him. Uh, He's done an incredible 21 attractions for Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and other parks around the world uh, for Disney's won four Awards. I mean, just great stuff. And we're going to get into it with him in a little bit. But first, we have news.
0: We've got some news. Skull Rock Podcast,
2: this week in Disney and pop culture.
0: Wow, I love that fanfare. It's befitting. It's befitting fanfare, considering.
1: It's really wonderful to
2: be here. I mean, what a ride it's been. I've loved being a part of these movies and now with Disney Plus, this series, it was an emotional moment for me in the film. It It was an emotional moment for me to be in these films and when Sam Wilson finally became Captain America, it was a moment that was all about the future. A moment where kids of all races can look at Captain America and maybe see a little bit of themselves. I'm so proud to be a part of the cinematic universe and now Part of all this. So with that, it is my honor to introduce for the first time in Avengers Campus, Captain America. So how cool
0: of a moment was that where, you know, Anthony Mackie at the opening for Avengers Campus and the opening ceremony from Bob Chapek to Kevin Feige of Marvel Studios, everybody there to to pass the Captain America shield to his his counterpart, playing Captain America, Falcon, was promoted to to that, and 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 was bequeathed the shield uh, at the end of Avengers: um, uh, Infinity War, Endgame, rather. And then, of course, the Disney Plus series, and you binge watched it, right, Dave? Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: I, I completely watched the entire series. It was a fabulous ending to it, and uh, and it was sort of a great update for uh, the Captain America character.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what I love about it, Dave, is that there is source material. There is precedence. It's not something they just manufactured. There were years of of, of uh, Sam Wilson and and the Falcon being Captain America. Um, you know, since twenty fifteen, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, it's great to see that. It's great to see Paul Rudd there and John Favreau. They're opening Avengers Campus. Dave, have have you seen uh, everything going around with this Avengers Campus opening?
1: Yeah, I've seen a lot of it in the news, and I've seen pictures uh, uh, of the entire uh, new campus and all of that. I, I, to be quite honest with you, uh, Al, John, I probably won't go down there until like December of this year. You know, well, good. Gotcha. Um, I'm going to let all the hubbub uh, and the reopening and uh, the pandemic tail off before I go back out.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and I and I get it. Um, it would be great if you were there to do some kind of signing uh, book signing there at some point, maybe down the uh, downtown Disney area. But at any rate, um, it was great to see Josh tomorrow, Bob Chapek and everyone kind of open the doors for the superheroes of the uh, Marvel's um you know Avengers Campus that opened up and it looked really great. There is um, a nice live stream that they hosted, which was obviously well done, and I'm looking forward to experiencing that. I know my friends here um, our reporters from Source Radio and the various podcasts all tried to get in, and uh, <laughs> it was really difficult uh, to have people come in, our locals come in and, and cover the event and. Uh, that Spider-Man attraction is just like nothing else. Uh, they they weren't able to get on. They they started bright and early trying to, to get on the app for the lottery to get on there. They didn't get it.
1: Yeah, that's too bad. It is, but look at it. It, it. It's that reduced capacity right now.
0: It really is. And I have to say that the food the experiences the gift shops look amazing i can't wait to experience that myself dave and uh hopefully one of these days like i said we'll uh we'll swing by there and check it out but um you uh talking about cruella uh sent this note to me it looks like director craig um gillespie and screenwriter tony mcnamara are returning for a sequel for cruella
1: Yeah, they're going to do a Cruella 2 and uh, bring back the uh, cast, uh, you know, Emma Stone and uh, uh, Joel Fry and uh, uh, the the whole group. Uh, I I think it's I think it's great. It's a great franchise. Like I said, I really enjoyed it. And and Aljon. The soundtrack is fabulous. Again, I, I have to give a shout out to the music executive that was on the film, uh, overseeing uh, what songs were going to be
0: played. It, it really is a fantastic soundtrack. Well, I, I'm I'm making sure that I look it up because it has a lot of, I guess, '70s studios. Yeah, they kind
1: of did. They 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 sort of cued off of sort of that uh, '70s punk. Uh, era, and uh, like I said, there, there's some terrific uh, you know, in their styling, but but music wise, it's sort of 70s uh, uh, hits. I can't wait to check it out because they've got
0: yeah. Super Tramp, Big Fan, uh, Bee Gees, and they've got uh, gosh, Connie Francis is in there. I'm just looking at the <laughs> official soundtrack from <laughs> Disney, and uh. You know, it, it's really it's great when you have those kind of period style stylistic pieces. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy I think did it really well over the past couple of films, and this one uh, looks like it's going to do well too. And the yeah. that soundtrack is going to be awesome. Another note you sent me, Dave, is uh, Discovery Warner Media combo gets a name, and we talked about this for the last couple of weeks. It's uh, they've got this new merged company, and
1: yeah, uh, yeah, and and now they're they've they're renaming it. It's called Warner Brothers Discovery. 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 That's their new name. Uh, And I have to say, uh, you know, this is and we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. This is the beginning of a consolidation that's going on across the media landscape. And, uh, you know, absolutely expect more to happen in the future uh, because uh, it's all about content. Content is king. And, uh, you know, when you've got Netflix uh, in the number one slot for streaming, you, you know, followed by Prime uh, Video from Amazon, their streaming service uh, is number two, and Disney Plus is number three, Um, you know, how many streaming services can you have? you know and I know. You, you know you've got paramount plus you've got peacock you've got apple uh you know and there there's a smattering of of smaller ones that
0: are all at the back of the pack and and some of those are going to have to combine at some point yeah exactly um, looking forward to seeing what happens there and how that the different franchises are going to be affected you know i'm particularly interested dave in the video games department how is that going to shake out because it's kind of an anomaly right now. You know, Sony's got their own thing going on, you know, yeah, with Sony yeah, Columbia yeah. Pictures and their video games and PlayStation uh and their technology stuff, but it'll be interesting to see what's going on especially with video games with Warner Brothers. They're developing a lot of games.
2: Sure. So, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah. And the Disney Dream coming back, uh they're doing a test cruise in late June. It looks yeah. like uh, looks like a CDC has approved a two night test sailing for the Dream on June 29th from Port Canaveral. Um, hopefully this will work out to everyone's advantage. It looks like Royal Caribbean revealed last week that more hundred, uh, that more than two hundred fifty thousand people had volunteered to sail on trial cruises. Uh, I volunteer. <laughs> there you go. You know why? Why not? Um, yeah. I mean things are coming back to life.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and as they should, you know, and I think by the end of the summer, they're going to be sailing
0: again. No problem. Right on. This is an interesting note that I found, Dave. Did you see that Bob Bob Iger sells millions of dollars of his company stocks, Disney stocks? yeah you know this this is a normal thing though you know for for these guys
1: uh you know that that are you know have accumulated literally hundreds of millions of dollars in stock options and and stock over their tenure uh at, at the company uh this is a natural uh you know paring down of their holdings so that they can diversify their portfolio so that's the only thing I would read into this uh nothing more and nothing less. You know? uh, okay. I was going to say
0: he's cashing out. Well, it's good. But uh, <laughs> this well,
1: well, he, he's not really cashing out. He, You know, he's selling a portion of uh, of the stock. You know, look, when you're investing, you can't concentrate all of your wealth into one stock. Right. I mean, that's not just not a smart thing to do. Right. And when you look across, uh, you know, corporate chiefs and CEOs, this is a natural thing. I mean, Jeff Bezos has been doing it for years where he's selling a billion dollars worth of Amazon stock uh in order to uh fund his blue origin uh space division right so you know I, this is a natural thing i wouldn't read any more into it than it's just he's diversifying
0: his portfolio well speaking of diversifying did you even did you even see this i noticed that uh, there is talk that vince mcmahon may be selling the wwe as well which i'd never thought hey. would happen
1: uh, you know something i wouldn't be surprised he's getting up there in age you know and uh you know th- taking something it's it's like george lucas selling lucasfilm yeah. you know it's like you want to find a good home for it while you're you know while it's still at the top of its game
0: yeah he's licensed them he's made his stockholders very happy with the licensing deal he's done with peacock recently and uh-huh. it looks like uh, you know maybe vince will uh, find a home for it with the uh, universal at some point it'll be interesting um Well, you know, every week we uh, we certainly share our regrets uh, that take place. You know, um, we're not getting any younger. And it looks like another Hollywood Broadway actress, uh, Mayberry RFD, Arlene Goldka, dies at age 85.
1: That's right. And, you know, you can't. I, I don't think anybody can, can forget her face. Uh, when you see a picture of her from Mayberry RFD, uh, you go, wow, I remember her because she was in so much stuff over the years. And she had a wonderful career that will live on um, uh, in, in these uh, archives and streaming services that are going to be putting this material back uh, on and making it available for people.
0: Yeah, she's been in. She's been a part of Hollywood for many, many years. Um, Mary Tyler Moore Show, MASH, All in the Family, and she's played a lot of different roles. But definitely one from uh, Mayberry. So, uh, rest in peace, and uh, much and, and, love to her and family and friends.
1: Al, John, I also got word uh, uh, yesterday that an animator who worked at the Walt Disney Animation Studios for many years, uh, a guy named Phil Young. Um, passed away at the age of 79. And I just want to give a shout out to him because I had worked with him over the years. And he was just a really a terrific guy, a wonderful individual and and a solid animator. He had worked on a lot of films uh, from, you know, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and, you know, Oliver and Company and all of these films in the 90s. Um, so condolences to him and just uh, uh, just wanted to give it a mention on air.
0: Absolutely. Well, rest in peace and you'll live forever in pop culture with your work that you've done through the years. So um, thank you for make, making that mention. And now I believe we're off to uh, the green room to welcome your guest.
1: Yes, uh, I'm going to uh, nudge uh, Jerry Reese out of his pensive uh, uh, reflection in the green room and get him to the microphone. Clear on the Skull Rock Podcast interview time. Well, Al John, as promised, uh, we've gotten Jerry Reese out of the green room. And I gotta tell you, I, I've been really looking forward to this. And I say this every week when we have a guest. I'm always <laughs> looking forward to our guests. But uh, we've got Jerry Reese, who's a writer, director, artist sculptor voice artist he's done live action animation augmented reality audio animatronics and immersive themed entertainment projects he's done over 21 attractions for disneyland disney world disney studios paris disneyland hong kong tokyo disneyland and the disney cruise line and he's won an amazing four Thea Awards for Disney and the Thea Awards are the themed entertainment awards it's like the Academy Awards for themed entertainment theme park rides so I want to welcome my friend and colleague and somebody I've worked for on a couple of projects <laughs> over the years Jerry
2: Reese welcome oh, to the show. thank you Dave and Al John I had so much fun working with you over the years too I must say uh and I just have been a big fan of your uh, your banter that you have here with various people. And I feel so fortunate to be uh, invited to be part of your show. So, well, uh, Jerry, I, I,
1: I'm, we are so happy to have you. And like I've always said, we can't possibly cover your uh, unbelievably amazing career uh, in in an hour, hour and a half, however long this goes, because, right. you, know, you know, we just kind of go along and we want to put together a great show. and We're not you know we're not being tied to a time so right on our audience to know that but jerry the the first thing i have to say and i always ask all of our guests how is it that you got involved in animation
2: Uh well that that's that's quite a story i think some in some instances there's a real spark a connection with other people you've talked to about it uh there's early memories uh goodness i I think one of my earliest Disney memories was as a toddler being held up to look through a window in the castle in the park and seeing the three fairies from uh, Sleeping Beauty. And they were casting magic with their little wands and it sparkled. And I, I, don't, I don't know if I was even speaking age yet, but I was just amazed at this magic that was happening. And, uh, you know, over the years, I, I remember opening a Cracker Jacks box and finding a, the prize in the package was a flip book. And looking at the flip book and and seeing a a scene of a guy that was fishing into a a bucket and he puts the little fish line in the bucket and he pulls out a fish that's way too big to fit in the bucket. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And that that's magical. And I could do that. I could do flip books. So I started doing flip books. And of course, you know, I think everyone you've spoken to had the uh, Walter T. Foster, Preston Blair uh, book, which I I found. Uh, So. everybody's had that book. I mean, that was the first animation book I got. Let me ask you, did you find the, the Gulf oil magazine, the Disney Gulf oil magazine? I used no. to get them, I used to get them at the gas station no. yeah, they had them on a wreck. And I actually wrote to them and sent some of my drawings into, into the, uh, into, you should look that up. I have some of them in a, in a file here, but wow. I actually, that was one of the first times I tried to draw a Disney character wrote to them and they sent back a very nice letter saying, you know, we're not directly involved with the studio. So we don't know how to get you in, but, but I was knocking on doors. Um, and then the other part that's a little different is I, uh, um, on my journey toward Disney with this, uh, you know, more and more of an, an obsession. Uh, I had some interesting sort of roadblocks in the way I grew up in a community where it was, you didn't go to the movie theater. That was that, that was a sin to walk into a movie theater. So, uh, I you know seeing the you old know, Bambi's playing or Pinocchio or whatever I couldn't go see that. So, was that, where, where, you, you grew up in Texas, right? No, I, I was born in Texas, but I grew up in uh, Loma Linda, California. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, it was it was a thing in the whole community. You do not go to the movies. However, you know, wow. you could go to the Disney park and you could watch the Walt Disney show on TV. So my family would gather around and watch the wonderful world of Disney. Um, and it, ironically, they would do something every year where they, they at the, in the local gym they would screen sound of music because everybody in the community loved the sound of music, but you couldn't go to a theater to see it because that would be a horrible thing, but you could gather in the gym and listen to, you know, wow. <laughs> trying to hear the singing with a projector <laughs> in the room with you echoing and everything. And so I was so frustrated with all of that. And they actually had a, uh, they had a, a question as you were going into high school to ask you, uh, had you ever taken drugs? Have you ever gone to a movie theater? So I was—I was so livid. I wrote a whole essay about that, and uh, let them he gave him a piece of my mind about if there was a supreme being, it would certainly want to have the best quality that the artist had in mind be experienced by the guests. How dare they? And all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I had to find workarounds. So I—I I discovered that there was this social in the community every Saturday night, and I talked them into letting me screen 16 millimeter cartoons from Disney. So I got Pluto and Mickey shorts, and I, I had my own little screening room there. And that was sanctioned. It wasn't in a theater. It was out on the patio by a big lawn where families were playing. And I had a rear screen projector and a, a 16 millimeter projector uh, that I would put up and in, in, uh, uh, you know, show onto that beautiful screen. And so I had my own little study session with myself there. I watched things like Susie, the little blue coop and, uh, you know, the, 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 the little twister, you know, Mickey and the, and the little twister and, uh, Willie, the operatic quail and on and on. So, and I I would receive the 16 millimeter prints early and I would, I, you know, there there was no home video or any of that stuff back then. So I would get the 16 millimeter roll of film and roll it out and try to look at the frames through the (laughs) light, you know, and I even was able to order, um, a, the the uh, segment from Fantasia with the the dinosaurs. So the the Rite of Spring section I was able to order separately as well. So so and out of that there were some interesting things. Like I still to this day when I see dappled light when I'm walking through the forest I think of Thelma Whitmer, who was a background painter on the mm-hmm. Disney shorts, and every time i saw in like a pluto cartoon or mickey and pluto or uh, you know goofy and i i would see the beautiful dappled light in the woods i would look at the at the credits at the end and there was delma uh, on the credits so to this day i still thank her for for making me think about dappled light and painting and, and all of that so i was i was doing homework let, let me ask you this question when was the first time you went into a movie theater well okay that brings me to a really pivotal night for my family <laughs> I'm riding in the backseat, we're coming back from my aunt and uncle's house it's night, and we go over a, a freeway overpass and just in the local neighborhood. So thankfully it wasn't super crowded, but there was happened to be a drive-in theater there and they were showing Pinocchio. I had never seen any of the Disney features yet. I was looking at every frame of animation I could from Disney, but we come up over this hill. And of course, as our car reaches the horizon, the drive-in screen gets, you know, more and more jutting up into the night sky. And it's the whale chase scene from Pinocchio. And, oh, my God, the dynamics of that. And I said, Dad, Dad, quick, pull over, please, please. So he'd, like, put on his blinkers, and he'd pull over and parked at the top of this overpass and let me watch the finale of Pinocchio. And so I pleaded with him. It's like, I know it's the rule but it's a drive-in theater. We're not really in a theater. We're out <laughs> outside and we're just in our own car. There's, we won't get any bad influences. Can we please go in? So, uh, so that was a decision point for, for my dad. It's he, he wow. went into the next screening and sort of slunk down in the seat and got us through. And and I watched Pinocchio on a big drive-in theater screen for the first time. And I, oh man, I just, I was hooked. I, I talked the the social groups later, uh, into letting me screen Bambi at a church facility. So I, I man, I was, I was pushing hard to, to try. So to, uh, at what point did they throw you out of church? Well, uh, I, you know, a uh, funny thing happened as I, as I got traction with Disney, yeah, they kind of started celebrating that and, and didn't really look so much at the rules. I, I, Somehow it was just the magic of Disney and the fact that I finally got involved, which, which in itself was was another little crazy chapter to the story, because I had no idea how to ever get to Disney. I had tried writing to the that magazine I told you about. I had actually written to WDI, and when I was like thirteen, and I still have the letter. I wish I'd been more careful opening it. I ripped it open. And so it's like a really ripped apart envelope. But I had written to WDI asking them about what material they used for skin on audio animatronic characters. Because, say, you know, I, a 13-year-old, wanted to make an audio animatronic character. So (laughs) could they please tell me what they used? So I got a really nice personal letter back that was signed with a ballpoint pen and stuff. And it was not a form letter. They acknowledged my age. They they happy that I was a fan of the Disney parks and things like Pirates of the Caribbean, and but they cautioned me to be really careful with the the you know hot melt material that was used for the skin and like make sure you have an adult present when you use this. And but here's here's actually the stat sheet you could order it here, and, and they were really wow. nice.
1: Wow.
2: Um, and and when I was um, just going into high school, on the first day of one of the classes, the teacher handed out uh, just. Just a blank sheet of paper and said, "I want all of you in the room to write where you're going to be in five years and where you're going to be in ten years." And he came and collected them later and he read from mine: five years in an art school and ten years doing something for Disney. And uh, you know, my prediction was accurate, but I had zero idea how to bridge that gap at all, and and especially feeling like I was I was reaching extra hard from, <laughs> from my particular restrictions in my community. But I so here was the here was the secret you know, the secret sauce that finally opened the door. Uh, unlikely thing. I had been, you know, I'd ordered from the Cartoon Color Company, uh, you know, the Peg Bar and, you, you know, and, and got uh, one ream of the punched paper, you know. Boy, boy you know,
1: something that, that yeah. was like, aside from the Walter yeah.
2: Foster book. Yeah, yeah
1: which I think I got from Cartoon Color Company. You had the Cartoon Color
2: Catalog, right? Yeah. I mean,
1: that's what, that's what oh, we all paint. had. The yeah.
2: paints and everything. That's and you'd, awesome. You'd, so, and to, man, trying that first cell where it's, the, the, you know, doing the ink line on the front, turning it over and painting it and putting it over background, like, holy crap, this actually works. It's, so <laughs> anyway, I was so excited. But we couldn't afford to pay for the, the punched, pre-punched paper. So uh my mom found a paper factory where they would much cheaper just sell paper cut to the right size but not punched. Um so then I'm dealing with registration, right? So I I find out at the medical center that there's an audiovisual department that has an industrial strength hole punch. And so I knock on a side door and I talk to somebody that works there and can I please use this? So they're like, Oh, it's some kid from the high school. It's like, Oh, okay, fine. Or, you know, when we're not using it, you can punch the paper. So I'm in the middle of the punching the paper. My mom had driven me over. She's sort of standing in the doorway, making sure that I get out before I get caught, but I get caught. Um, and like the supervisor of the department comes in and he's like, what are you doing with our machine? And so I explained to him that I was, you know, trying to do animation at home. And he just said, you can't do that. You can't do that. You, you need an Oxbury stand, and you need this, and you need that. And he was listing all the reasons that I could not do that. So um, anyway, I, I I apologize, and I, I leave. And years later, I don't have direct memory of this, but years later, my mom told me that she remembered that event, and she said, "I mean, I remember the, I remember the argument, but I don't remember the, the little moment that happened in the car afterwards." She remembered this vividly. She said. She was kind of worried about how I would feel after I got scolded like that and told that my dream was stupid. Um, and she said that I just turned to her and said like, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So she was very happy that I had, my confidence was intact and everything. So I, I you know, I do some animation. I'm trying to do the, the penguins. Uh, uh, you know, I had seen a little segment of the penguin dancing from, from Mary Poppins. So I, I was trying to do that. And I go back to punch some more paper and this guy catches me again. So now he's really like, okay, what, you know, what are you up to? So I I said, look, I know I don't have an Oxbury stand, but I I put a tape across the living room. So it's a hot set and my family doesn't come in and I tied weights to the tripod. So it doesn't move much. And I do this whole thing. So he goes, okay, let me see what you're doing. So I bring in my little super eight projector and a piece of cardboard and I show him what I've been working on. So he manned his tune change. He said, wait a minute, you you did that? i said, Yeah. And said, You didn't trace that? That's your work? And I said, Yeah. And he 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 started going on this thing about I, w- I was at a seminar. There's some, you know, somebody from Disney was there. They said that the veterans are getting old enough where they're probably going to start looking at retirement. And they haven't really started training, mentoring new people. So they're starting to look around. And you know, if you're interested, here's a phone number and he writes down ed hansen disney feature animation department writes a phone number rips it off and hands it to me so the guy who said you can't do that gave me the number to the disney feature animation department it was the most important piece of paper i think i held in my life and i called it and and ed answered and i told him what was going on and he's like oh yeah I have your dad drive you down and So there was no CalArts program at the time. This was like, I think this was early 1974, maybe uh, late 1973, something like that. Um, So my dad just drove me down there and they were very nice to both of us. And I think my dad waited in Ed Hansen's little outer office there. And, you know, I met Eric Larson. And so they looked at my portfolio and I, I, I was sort of equally obsessed in those days with, um, human artwork of uh, like Rockwell and John Singer Sargent and, Mm -hmm. you know, portraiture, uh, but usually with expression and, um, and and animation. So it was kind of an equal split. So my portfolio had a, a, you know, interesting combinations of, of things. So they liked that and said, well, you know, we'll take you to meet Eric. And I met Eric Larson, who's amazing. He's one of Walt's nine old men. So I suddenly going from having no idea how I would even get to Disney was like hanging out with Eric. And he's like, well, here's a desk. And whenever you have a break from high school, you know, if you come in and do some tests, I'll give you some pointers. And, uh, so I, it was just an amazing turn of events and they, and my parents still, I mean, my, I go out and see my dad every week. He's 101 now and he's still making violins, um, Al John his fiddle shop. Nice. Um, so, you know, they said that over the years they reminded me that when i was in high school and they they just were tickled by this and they they told me on on a few different occasions they said you know back back when you were still in high school we would get calls from disney saying like hey when's jerry available when you know can you come in again to the studio and so uh i didn't realize how much but my parents told me as the years went on like oh yeah they were they were calling like trying to lure you in so i got to go in and have uh sessions with eric when i had a break from high school uh, and that was amazing. And then uh, as I was nearing the end of my, that was when I was in my junior year in high school, then I had a much bigger break and time to spend with him during the, the summer between the junior and senior years in high school. And then as I neared the completion of my senior year in high school, they they called me in and had a, a more of a special session with me where they gave me a tour to look around beyond what I'd been doing with Eric and said, you know, we're going to start this new thing called the CalArts Character Animation Program. How would you like to be teacher's assistant for year one? So I said, absolutely, that would be a dream. But, you know, my family can't at all afford the prices of a school like that. And so they, they just gave me a scholarship and they made the difference. And so I, I spent that whole summer. As soon as I graduated from high school, I spent the entire summer living at the studio Preparing materials for the first year of uh, the CalArts Character Animation Program. That
1: that, that is so amazing, and, and and I have to say, like you know, f- from from my perspective, that that was a different time. That's actually when people actually returned calls or responded to letters. Right, uh, I and, love that. <laughs> uh, you know that
2: that's <laughs> and just there was, so crazy, yeah, and, and they would today, just say, "Come down." You, you really don't get that. Yeah. And, and and then you could, you could say, I I happen to be in the neighborhood. Can I come in to see Eric? And they're like, Oh yeah, Eric, he's here. Come on in. You know, there wasn't like a big security, get it on the calendar, get your pass, go through double, you know, agents or whatever. (laughs) It was just like, uh, I'm here. Oh yeah. Come on in. Um, so yeah, it it was quite a different era. And so then I, I, it was amazing then as I was preparing materials, uh, that was rather fun to dig into the archive.
0: Recording stopped.
2: Uh, I, oh, we lost Dave. Al John, Al John Dave. I think we lost Dave. We lost
0: Dave. He'll come back. Stand by. Recording in progress. Sorry about that. You know, I'm, I,
1: I'm having some some uh, internet issues here, but Jerry, it was really a different time back then because, you know, the idea that you could write to the studio and somebody would write back to you and give you <laughs> encouragement is very different from today. I mean, you know, they, they even have yeah. a word, word today called ghosting. Where people <laughs> just don't even respond <laughs> to you, you know right. what I mean? and, yeah. and, I mean that's crazy, right?
2: And yeah, and to be able to just drive to the studio entrance, and pull over and park, and you go into the little lobby and call and say, "Hey, Eric, I'm here. Can I come in?" It's like, "Oh yeah, come on up." You know, it was a, it was that casual where there wasn't like a preordained you know uh, schedule where you, you went through security and and all of that good stuff which you know I, I i'm glad you know since we need more of the security now i'm glad they instituted but it was really charming back in the day to just stop by and be welcomed and spend yeah. some time and um, it, so there was a
1: different there was a different feel to the company back in those different days. era I mean, yeah, yeah. it's very 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 different than it is you know obviously today
2: and, and i think eric started really looking at us as his uh, his little fledgling kids his adoptees you know <laughs> Um, Rebecca was just, uh, drawing a map. We were trying to remember where all of us sat in relation to Eric when we were going through his tutelage and, um, the, he had one little back room that was just a one desk. And then there was, uh, two sort of adjoining rooms. And I, I think part of the time I was in his single desk, little adjoining room. And, uh, but, it, but man, he, he, uh, and he was so kind to all of us, but he taught me a huge, huge thing uh it was so important. I you know, I did not know about rough drawings and rough ideas. when i when I saw the finished footage, I thought that's how you drew when you were doing a first draft of the scene. It's like I would look at something like, uh, you know, a scene from Jungle Book or from Robin Hood, where you could actually see the pencil line instead of it being an inked line. And I thought, well, that's that's how you should draw. So I as I would sit down to do tests with Eric, every extreme i was drawing was trying to be like that that finished thing so he was had none of that it's like no 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 it's got to be rough and he would take this thick blue pencil and draw rough things and then he he i I didn't know how to work that way at the beginning and at the beginning i must admit that i cheated a little bit because i i not because i was being obstinate it was because i didn't know the routine of how to draw a construction circle and construct things over it. I, I would still draw my pretty drawing and then go back. And what I would do last is draw in the little circle. <laughs> like if I started, anyway, right? So that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. stupid. But, but he, you know, he finally got it through my head, how to work rough. And of course it was a huge lesson. He said, you know, if you fall in love with precious drawings, you might be 20 drafts away from the right idea. It's like, yeah. you shouldn't be falling in love with drawings yet. You should, uh, you should just be trying ideas. So, you know, that was a, that was a huge benefit from, from Eric. And then and when I was prepping for, uh, for that first year of CalArts, one of the things that was really interesting to do was, uh, you know, I could go to just look through all the, the drafts They called it of the of the films where it listed every shot and how many feet and frames it was and who did the animation and the effects and the assisting all that stuff. So I could look through the features and and the shorts and find scenes that I thought would be stimulating for me and my fellow students to study up there as as flipping scenes and. So uh, they would bring them to the room, and you could flip the original scenes, which was kind of amazing. Like, here's a milk call scene from Pinocchio with Jiminy Cricket running down the street trying to put his jacket on. It's like, these are the drawings. And so then they would make careful copies in that rocks department where it was three different rooms deep yeah, yeah. did you like you you would put the original drawing in one room and then there was a big machine in the second room that would be doing the photocopy and in the third room it would print out on the right size paper with the registration yeah. holes punched in it.
1: it it would it would actually uh, uh, it, it was uh, a camera that yeah. had, uh, photographed the drawing. And put an electric charge onto a nickel plate, uh, a, a nickel coated plate. Yeah. And uh, and and then they would dump toner, and the toner would stick to the electric charge. Right. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, this yeah. Is the, this yeah. is the Xerox process, but it was a very manual process.
2: Yeah, it was big, a big, huge industrial strength, beautiful, and the results were beautiful. They, yeah. they looked quite gorgeous. So. They would do a duplicate of, of the the flipping scene that I had chosen, but then I, it was up to me to go through and try to do the exact copy of the exposure sheet. So I felt like a monk doing illuminated text work. You know, I would huddle there for hours and I would try to get the the heliotrope pencil and the blue pencil and the the the, the you know the six B black pencil and whatever they had used to to do on it, and then. Going through and copying the voice modulations and uh, everything that I could see on the exposure sheet to try to do a faithful duplication of that, to then enclose with the Xerox copy and send it out to the school. So, uh, so that was part of my prep for for our first class.
1: Let, let me ask you. Uh, I remember when I first started at the studio, there was an old timer named Leroy. Was, was Leroy down in the yeah uh,
2: uh, in the we called it the morgue, but it yeah, was it was a, the, the the archives.
1: Yeah, and, and, but it was in the basement of the animation building,
2: right? I think that's I think that's why it was called the Morgue. It was underground, and it was the archive. Yeah, Leroy was there. He was uh, amazing. He was he was a font of of information. Now, while Dave's
0: loading back on, I have to say yeah. that the stories that you've told about you getting into the industry, as it were, is mm. just amazing because you have got it's very inspiring. There there are people that looked at you the guy that was trying to deny you and then all mm. of a sudden you come back around and you you really prepared for that moment and once again isn't that what it's all about your preparation your are learning that skill and yeah. then all of a sudden saying here's my work and the guy go takes takes a liking to you and then basically says well here's the keys to the kingdom and now yeah. off
2: you go well you're absolutely right and it's you know there's there's different ways to focus your your efforts when you have a dream like that, and one is to be constantly looking for the opportunity, but not putting enough energy into preparing. And the other way, which is kind of what fate handed me, is I I could had all the time I wanted to prepare my skills, but I had none of the, the, the even the, the idea of how to make opportunity happen. So it's like the you know you have opportunity and prep and uh you know some people like work 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 on the opportunity but they haven't prepped yet and the opportunity comes along and it comes and goes because they didn't have the prep ready at least i knew like if it ever happens i'll at least have something prepped if it never happens i still had it prepped right uh, well
0: so so are you on record as being one of the youngest animators working for the studio
2: ed hansen actually came to my room and uh, uh, and told me when i was when I was promoted to full animator status after and we will get into the into the stories later, I'm sure. But after two years of CalArts, I was drafted by the studio, which happened to a lot of people. But at the time I was in the first four ever drafted back from CalArts. And then I was first one of, of that four to be elevated to full animator status. And Ed Hansen came to my room and said, by the way, just wanted you to know for the record that to date, you had the quickest calendar move from higher date to full animator status. Wow! Like, like you just you just set a record. So, uh, and I'm sure it had to do with the, the you know couple years of prep with Eric that Wow! Well, would say yeah. preceded all of that. But. Well, uh,
0: well, right. Well, that's awesome. But, but being at CalArts, you were there, you know, in its formative years and a lot of the contemporaries, obviously, you know, uh, still f- filmmaking, you know, Brad Bird and, and oh. Tim Burton, Musker. I mean, the names are, are just giants and it's yeah, great that all are. of you guys were just kind of seemingly just palling around
2: there at CalArts. We, we, we were the guinea pigs in that first year. Yeah. Guys. Dave Bossert, we were talking about the, right. our favorite dessert, the frozen Dave. <laughs> oh my God!
1: I am just sorry about this, Jerry. This is actually the first time in all the shows that we've been doing that that,
2: that this has happened. I you don't know what? what? I I'm I'm used to having challenges during production, so no worries.
1: <laughs> well, so Jerry, um, was Leroy the guy that was down in the basement of the Ink and Paint Building where the uh, animation archives used to be? We used to call it the morgue. But yes, was was, yes. was he the guy that was? Because uh, I remember going down there and and, and say, Hey, Leroy, I, I want to look at some. Pinocchio. Oh, the yeah. Pinocchio scenes are on that shelf over there. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. I'll see you yeah. later. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Leroy was, had so much information. My goodness, a, a walking library of their entire history. Yeah. He knew where everything was and was keeping it in pristine condition. And there was that trust at the time where, you know, you talk to Leroy and he would, he, and of course, honor system. It's like, he knew exactly who you were, where you were sitting in the studio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like he brought you the originals from the feature. Yeah. Set it on your desk, and he there was no rush. It's like, let me know when you're done. And yeah. you might be studying something for two days or for a week and a half. And, you know, if it got past a week, he might give you a call and go, you, about, you know, what do you think? You about done? And But it was... Uh, and I was so glad that at least amongst the you know my peers at the studio that everybody really honored that and and kept everything in beautiful condition and got everything returned to Leroy uh, just as it should be. and because because we treasured all that stuff.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean that that it was such a I mean, it, it was it was such an honor to actually be able to access that material the way we were able to do it. You
2: know, yeah, and you'd find out things that you never could just by watching the film footage. If you you'd go through and find there were some custom breakdowns between extremes that helped get some sort of eccentric little gesture made by a character mm-hmm. to get yeah. the emotion pop through a little bit more. And uh, yeah, just just <sighs> the kind of study you couldn't do frame by frame. I think Dave's having another uh, uh, streaming challenge. You Can you guys nice hear me? Yes, can I, I, I can hear you. But you're visually, you're frozen. Emotionally, you're completely warm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we we have technology here. We tech can do solutions. This. Yes, yes, tech solutions. Personal.
2: Okay, yes. Dave. Dave's gonna love. It. Al John <laughs> is his personal hotspot.
0: Yes, I got you. I mean, we, I mean, I have a whole radio <laughs> station here at the house. You know, so
2: uh, let's, let me let me hit Dave. Lucky. Yeah. I, 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 when I was uh, a kid, one of the other things I was into was, was music. And I, awesome. I, I, I wound up hanging out with two guys that were much older than me. I was in my teens and they were in their late, they probably around 30. Yeah. And they had hung out with, with Glenn Campbell back in like, I think the Wrecking Crew days. Or yeah, absolutely. Days. Yeah. And so they, they came through town and they hung out for a while and they liked the way I improvised on the electric bass. That's awesome. And so we got into jam sessions and they invited me to go to LA for, for uh, studio sessions. And I said, but I, I can't read music. And they said, ah, just pretend. They said, you can count bars. Right. And I went, well, yeah, of course. Exactly. And they said, well, we'll just put the music up and just look like you're reading it. We love the way you play. So they, they took me down to some sessions and I, I, and when it'd set up the you know the music at the beginning, I would whisper to them, like, "Is there any any tricky bass runs they want me to do?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, bar bar forty two here, look at this. It's like, what does it sound like?" and you do it on this guitar. It's like, oh. okay. so I, <laughs> and, and uh, so I did it, and I got paid, and they thought I read music, and that's awesome. So you <laughs> recorded with the wrecking crew. Well, no, with uh, with a couple of guys that trained with Glenn Campbell during the oh, record. okay, I was so, going to say that's great. So, they, so. Were, they were off; they had spun off and were doing their own gigs after that. Okay. But that's where they had sort of gotten their chops was like Glenn Campbell and the yeah record. Tommy Tedesco and yeah. all those guys. So uh, awesome. this These two guys, like Alan and and Dan, yeah. were were du- they and they could play the Chet Atkins, you know, pickings. Oh. Yeah. Beautifully, so they'd be like chugging away on that, yeah. and I'd be doing the bass walk and stuff with them. Oh, that's so. Uh, so I have some fond music memories from those early well, days. Well, that, that's
0: awesome. Well, I, I dig that, you know. And I know that Dave, uh, Dave's going to try to reconnect here, but um, well, look, you know, while Dave gets reconnected, and he, we'll go through the history for sure. There is something I I wanted to ask you about, and that's maybe some of your your newer uh, things that you've been doing because I know that you recently did. Um, work with the Marvel uh, franchise and doing this, oh, yeah. doing this really cool interactive thing. You can you tell us a little bit about that and how you came upon working with Marvel?
2: Yeah. They, uh, you know, the, um, the mission breakout. Yeah. Well, you not only project. did, uh, well you did mission breakout for the Marvel, did the Marvel experience. experience. Yeah. Yes. The Marvel experience with the big the inflatable domes that you yes. put up in Scottsdale, Arizona in a field. And yes, um, that was, it was so interesting because I, I dealt directly with Joe Casada on that, but yes. not with the rest of Marvel. So I flew to New York to pitch him on it, but it was, it was a really interesting group of indie producers who put together a deal that just preceded the big Disney Marvel deal. So they got in just in time and it gave them over a decade of control for that odd space for, for the characters. Um, they allowed, you know, now it sort of happens all the time. But back when I was doing that a few years ago, we were getting to co-mingle characters that normally didn't appear together. Mm -hmm. And and Casada was just going, well, you're not in the movie theater. You're out in a giant you know 80 foot and 160 foot domes in the on a field. So that's not technically the movies, which is controlled by Paramount and Disney and whatever. That's you're your own thing. And it's not television and it's not theater because it's all media driven instead of live actors. And you're not at a theme park because you keep moving, like every month or so you pick up the stakes and go again. So this is like no man's land. So wow. he kind of had so much fun like jumping in and sort of co-writing stuff of having characters be together and merge their coexistence in a way that now is sort of quite commonplace, but at the time it was uh, an early experiment with that stuff. And so we had, we had a ton of fun with that. And I, I sort of lived at the third floor previous house for several months, getting that stuff on its feet because I actually had no, the, 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 the producers gave me no uh, way to pre-visualize stereoscopic 3d dome projection. Yeah. Um, I, I just had to trust that I could make it work. So I would guess um, we took like iPads and did like the virtual look arounds yeah. with them. Yeah. Um, but I didn't actually see the, the key, the prime three stereoscopic 3D, 360, 80 foot dome, which you could walk around freely on by the way, you were not in seats or anything. Yeah. Um, I didn't see that until two days before the public saw it in the wow. real space. Wow. And so and thankfully it worked and people <laughs> dug it and I had been predicting moves. I was trying to be super careful not to make people sick, not to make people fall over, but to have them feel the dynamics. So there was a, a whole theory of movement that I had worked out and way back machine, uh, a fellow Cal art student in year one, Doug Leffler. Yeah. He's head of story at the third floor. So, oh. his house. so the two of us were like, Oh, since first year of CalArts, we're back together again. Wow. Working out this crazy stuff together. And so our theories about how to choreograph movement for the audience to feel the dynamics but not feel motion sickness actually worked. And in in four cities where we traveled through, we only got one individual that felt a little queasy. Um, so it was, uh, it, it paid off. But that was, that was a really intriguing thing. And uh, um, it, it was you know, some people looked at it as the fact that we were tweaking between cities as sort of, well, you cheated the last city because you changed it and made it better for the next city. But uh, a lot of people that were on social media and that were, uh, you know, that were out, out there uh, experimenting with new tech, dug it because they went, well, it's like an app that's getting updated. Like your whole field is like the, the app 2.6 yeah. and 2.8 and 2.9 and 3.0. And it's like, like, we're getting to walk into the next version of the app And so, so, uh, you know, that, that sort of younger crowd seemed to dig, dig that aspect that it was evolving instead of just being a locked, a locked thing. Well, it really Uh, was kind of the the predecessor
0: to this augmented reality thing that's going on now, you know, that uh, the the people are going into the void and things like that. It's just kind of a, a different kind of. Kind of thing. I think you guys called it hyper reality.
2: So. Yeah, yeah. And and now I see that's being like cribbed by other people and, and used all the time. But yeah, it was <laughs> it, it was the first use of that in in major advertising and promotion. And now I think I think it's being used by uh I forget which group. Um I it might be the void, but yeah, there's void there's a group the- that is saying hyper reality and it's like dudes like have you no shame? Like that was our that was our slogan was in like 2015 2014. Yeah, you we're ahead uh, of it ahead of time for sure. And then right. you
0: also um, talked a little bit about uh, Mission Breakout. I mean, once again, and by the way, I also have to say Joe Casada, also musician and big guitar fan. Ah, I'm, I'm cool. sure you guys cool. may have may have, may have uh, done that, but Joe Joe and I have talked about guitar a lot, and he's ah. super cool. I know he's got a huge cu- uh, guitar collection. But um, ah, but also, you know, Mission Breakout. You want to tell us a little bit about um, how that was because this is the the first foray with Marvel in. Um, the U.S. parks.
2: Right. So, uh, you know, I I was asked to get, to dive in and get involved with that. It, it was, the, you know, going through the transition from Tower of Terror to, to Mission Breakout. And so they said, we're not sure if James Gunn is even going to be available to direct us. So be ready to direct the whole thing. Uh-huh. Um, if, he's, if he's available, then obviously collaborate with him, of course. But um, but just be ready for anything that might happen. So, so I went in, and the first thing I did, and um, you know, Joe Roddy was was involved as the the major domo over the whole thing. The the first thing I did, and I was so fun because it, it kind of it, it sparked something with uh, with Joe Roddy. Uh, I I had wanted to goose up the experience and sort of make it more cohesive like the reason you were going in the flow experience flow you were going in and then when i walked in and was going to start getting involved the pitch was that the, the the guardians were on display in the sort of glass vitrines um just on the floor level they they were with along with anything else you'd walk past them and then you would go ride on the gantries as a separate thing um and i said well to me, the collector is a smart guy. He knows they escape from everything. He figures if he just puts them in a normal vitrine, they're out. So he would try to do something more epic. So I, while well, Joe and Steve Spiegel and Amy Jupiter, some people were taking a break. I asked permission, like, I, I would like to do like a, a redraft and put a reel together. So it's like, great. So Joe comes back and you know how he is. He's like, I, I, he's like more than prompt. He's like, comes back early and sits down. Okay. What do you got? <laughs> so <laughs> I hit play and I had recorded all the voices for temp uh, oh, yes. for yes. Except for Gamora, which it had, had, um, uh, I, I think, let me see. I, I, I had, I, my wife had done that. Nice. But, um, but I had done all the other characters rocket and, and everybody and, so I had established that story thing of having the collector, and i had even done the collector's voice, and, and Benicio Del Toro gave, made me hell for the accent I did for him. Oh. <laughs> um, but, but for the first time in in, in my story reel, uh, it established that he had he was determined to hold them forever. It's like, yeah. nobody else could hold them. hold them, I will. I've hung them in the center of my tower over an abyss with these grindy teeth that will chew them to bits if they ever escape and that's where they're proudly on display if you get in my gantry you can go up and take a look at them um, on where they are I'm holding them captive so so joe liked the humor of it he liked the sort of epic theatricality of it and he told me as soon as i stopped that he went you've now turned architecture into story because now every time we look at that tower from a distance we'll imagine them hanging in that tower that that didn't exist until today so awesome. that sort of juiced up uh, the team into getting, you know, feeling like there was a, a dramatic flow in the experience toward toward what you were experiencing as you got on the gantry to go up. And I actually filmed more scenes than people have ever have ever seen. Um, we only rendered out about a third of the available scenes of the the guardians. So there's a complete thing of their pre-escape when Rocket stops to call to them and they're like wanting his help and there's them leaping over and doing the escape itself. And then there's more scenes of the mayhem that go on. So there's uh if they want to, they can keep rendering out and rotating in more uh, like two thirds, two thirds additional content than they've ever shown the, the public.
0: That's amazing. Well, that's a great thing about that attraction is that it could morph and change and you'll be seeing different versions yeah. mixed in and, with
2: the stuff that you already in Atlanta, Atlanta, we already shot uh, more scenes than have ever been shown with the, uh-huh. with the main, main actress. So. I bet you did. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Dave. Hey. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, listen, I, we're, we're transparent here. Uh, just for our listening audience, I've been out of the picture here for a few minutes because I had to reboot my entire internet system. You know, and I have not only the router had to be rebooted, but the Eero system that runs through the house. Uh, That gives gives us Wi-Fi in all the uh, corners of the house. And so um, I had dropped off probably for a good five minutes or so, huh? At least. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. We missed you. We missed you. Well, I missed you too. And one of the things I did want to ask you about was the first uh, bit of animation you did for production. Uh, uh, at at Disney, I know you guys were just talking about one of the uh, the attractions.
2: We leaped around to different things. We we yeah. for the moment, since you weren't here, had skipped the entire CalArts experience. But got it. Yeah, <laughs> go back yeah. and do that at some point. We'll edit but, everything uh, back, so, so it's fine. I was drafted um, after the two years, which is uh that's an adventure unto itself. But at the end of the two years. At CalArts, the the first four of us were drafted to go at the studio. And um, And that happened quite a few times. Who was that? Who were the four? It was uh, Doug Leffler, Brad Bird, John Musker, and me. And then I believe that same year from another class, I think they grabbed Henry Selick that same year from the experimental animation class. But uh, so we were the first four that were nabbed away from the CalArts character animation program. And I immediately was drafted into a cleanup, final cleanup on Pete's Dragon. So they were in the crunch and, you know, you had the big photo stats you put on your desk with, uh, you know, where everything had to be carefully registered to, you know, uh, Elliot with with the kid writing on his neck or whatever. And so you had to carefully register the human touch with the animated character's reaction and all of that good stuff.
1: And just for our our listening audience, um, the photo stats are literally a, it's like a a still photo that has the registration holes at the bottom. So you would put that down on your desk and put the animation paper on top of it.
2: Right. It's every frame of the live action film that you're working with printed out separately as a still on a horribly stiff paper. <laughs> that's hard to see through. So you have to turn the light up really bright underneath of it and then strain your eyes to try to see through the paper with your animation on top of it. Uh, but the it was critical thing was the registration, because once you get in a theater and that's all blown up really big, if you've left, I like, got a little sixteenth of an inch gap between a hand and where it's something that's holding it that'll look huge on the theater screen. So there's a lot of TLC. I'm I'm
1: curious to ask uh, if you remember, and I know you were you were just getting, you know, like your first gig at the studio there. But uh, do you remember if they had locked the camera off uh, for uh, those uh, scenes of
2: animation live action combinations? The, the scenes that I received, I don't know if they did it across the board, but the scenes that I received were uh, locked off so that, they, you know, you didn't get the extra drift that, that was encountered uh, later on with Roger Abbott.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there would be like this ever so slight little drift oh, yeah. on the camera. Yeah. And it would be like, why didn't they lock the camera off? You know, yeah. and uh, and and if you had ever worked with Dick Williams, he would get this like wide-eyed, and he'd be like, "Life is on one." <laughs> <you know? laughs>
2: yes, and I did, uh, and, and later on, I did uh, a piece, uh, Michael and Mickey, with Dean Cundey and the whole crew that had shot Roger, um, and Zemeckis was supposed to direct that, and Zemeckis got tremendously sick at the time, and he wished me well to take over and so i got to come in and shoot the characters combined in a la roger with the roger team so dean Cundy and his team when i would say well the character's about this high and he needs to open this drawer and it's like oh yeah we know how to rig the thing you know with, with the you know our, our two directors before we, we went through that so uh and, and at the end of it they just we had so much fun together and they just said man if there's a roger sequel it's like it'd be fun to work this way because it's like instead of two directors arguing about stuff it's like you direct live action you direct animation it's like so you know what you want the camera to do and you know what the character size is and so uh they went hey let's let's get together and do the sequel so uh it, it yeah
1: you know, you've had such a varied career because you are one of those rare individuals in, in the animation world who's really got a firm foot in the live action world uh, you've directed live-action films. You've directed animated films,
2: uh, and you've directed combinations and and, and things that need uh, animatronic participation with yeah. your actors on the screen and and in in room effects and augmented reality aspects and does that make it exciting versions.
1: for you? I mean, do you, do you, do you like, do you like that? I I mean, I, I've always felt like, it, you know, having that kind of variety just makes it, you know, it's different and, and,
2: you know, change it up here and there. I, you know, it, it does make it very exciting. And I, I, the thing that makes it exciting in particular with the Imagineering teams is that they're not, a slave to the technology. It's the other way around. It's like the technology is a slave to the storytelling. And so, you know, some companies you get involved with, with emerging technologies are so in love with their their tech itself that they think it's it's somehow the reason for you to experience something. Um, What we know in the parks is that more and more these days, as soon as you open something, maybe it's already known technology to the public. And it's going to be like, yesterday's technology right away. So unless that tech is hanging around characters that you care care about and emotions that make you want to come back and go through it again, uh, there's no point. So it's, it's great to work with a group that is bringing all the different storytelling sort of aspects together, whether it's live actors, it's animators as actors, it's motion capture it's augmented reality it's audio animatronic characters it's in theater effects all that stuff to know that all of them are admitting as we start this is all about story character and emotion and when we make that work that'll that'll make it work on opening day and 10 years later and 15 years later um so it's 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 wonderful to be in the sandbox with those kind of people, like the kindred spirits.
1: Yeah, and, and also it's it's taking known technology and, and doing something different with it. You know, so it's it's almost unexpected. I mean, I think when you look yeah. at Roger, Roger Rabbit, Roger Rabbit was, you know, uh, uh, that was nothing new, combining animation with live action. I mean, Dave Fleischer did it with the Out of the Inkwell series in the 1920s, yeah. right? So that was known technology, but it was taken to the nth degree
2: right and like to a place where people hadn't seen it before you know yeah and and sometimes taking a different direction and not only the nth degree, but a, a, a detour in what it was being used for i i, I recently you know I, I i spent five years as an executive r&d imagineer and so you know for the last five years i was behind the curtain where most of the things are top secret and it's emerging technologies. It's magic to happen in the future, five years, 10 years in the future. And I I gave a talk there and early on, and I I put a phrase up that was kind of meant to, to be provocative. And it said, we will not win the next technology race with better technology. We will win the next technology race with better philosophy. And what I went back to was Walt in the early days. And I went, you know, back when Walt and his team became Kings of the Hill they didn't have better technology than than the the competitors. It's like everybody had the stack of drawings and the down shooter camera and you show them in sequence and they seem to move. It's like the same novelty of technology was there. Walt and his team were thinking about it differently. They went, I I want this character to behave in such a way that you swear that it's not a drawing on paper, that it's this living little creature that has feelings that can have hope and injury and redemption and, uh, and make you get invested in that character's fate, you know, and that philosophical thing driving the same technology palette is what made them Kingsdale. And then, you know, is that the, you know, um, amusement parks becoming theme driven story parts. So theme parks instead of amusement parks. So it wasn't just for diversion. It was for immersion in stories and uh, you know, uh, robotics becoming animatronics And, you know, thankfully, in getting into computer graphics, you know, pixels becoming performance and it's it was always the philosophy driving that made the difference. So and and that's still absolutely the case. And I I think as technology is is reaching these thresholds where it's 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 in such hyperdrive of quick evolution. And, and there's so much big promise beyond the, the novelties that are happening today, tomorrow. And, you know, I, I'm just, one of my missions is to try to keep teams aware of the big epic vision beyond the little, like the explosions of excitement over today's NFT novelty or whatever it's like. And I love that. But to me, it means something different than it means to to them selling a gift for $250,000. To me, that means the authenticity I've been striving for for many years with proving I'm the NFT of me when I talk to you so that you can trust it. I'm actually talking to Jerry. That's not somebody masquerading as him. It's like, okay, if the NFT of me does that, that's, that's what I care about, which is a long-term change the world, how how it communicates and how, how we live together. It's like right now, it's like, Oh, a gift $250,000 for a gift NFT. It's like, to me, it's like, okay, have fun with that novelty today. I care about the same thing, but for very different reasons that are long lasting and have to do with human connection and authenticity of communication and business and learning and entertainment and all of that good stuff.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, you, you said a lot of uh, incredible things there, but it all boils down to art leading the technology in this world, right? In, in, in the entertainment uh, sphere. Uh, as opposed to the technology driving it. It's really, the art has to drive it and the storytelling has to drive it. And and how you... Bring together these known technologies and present them differently. Because as you, you said with Walt in the early days of animation, mm-hmm. he, he had the same, you know, he was doing the same thing that Pat Sullivan was doing with Felix Cat yeah. and, and the Fleischers were doing and whatnot. But what Walt did was he he took the art to the nth degree. He, he took it to a place where he gave the characters an emotional resonance, you know, and yeah. made the audience crossed with
2: Snow White. Yeah. Well, it, there's the, there's the one thing that's happening is the novelty of the appearance of motion. When you have the persistence of vision with, you know, single images that are shown in quick succession, that's a novelty. The, the thing beyond that novelty is what you do with that character that seems to move, uh, that I, I would, I would marry sort of two of the words you said, you said artistry and story, like those two things together, make emotion the driver to me. It's like, you know, the the beautiful artistry of a story well told means that the emotion is in the driver's seat. And so, you know, having that be your guide, um, I think is, is a huge difference in experience. So on the one hand, people like, oh yeah, the drawings look like they're moving, don't they? And the other ones, the other group of people that they've forgotten there is even our drawings. They're already and like, oh, I wonder what's gonna happen to her. Like when this happens and she can't trust that guy and he's gonna show up and oh, what's gonna happen? It's like they're there when the other people are going, oh the that line seems, seems to be moving. <laughs> no, I, I, and that,
1: that's so true. I, you know, I, one one project I, d- I wanted to touch on with you, because we are jumping around here, but it, it made me really want to think about the uh, animation magic project that I had the pleasure of working on with oh, yeah. you. Uh, and, and for, for the audience, if you go on
2: the cruise ship and I'm imagining it's still going, I mean, I, Oh yeah. And they is, talked right? about it. They actually, the last conversation they had with me was they were hoping to expand it to the rest of the ship's, yeah. As, as well.
1: And, and essentially, what animation magic is, is that you go into one of the restaurants on the cruise ship, and there's a placemat in front of you, and you can draw your own character. And then uh, one of the cast members collects all of those. And while you're having your lovely dinner, uh, there's a cast member scanning all of your drawings, uh, all the guest drawings into the computer system. And those individual drawings that somebody's done, and it could be a stick figure, it could be a nice drawing, it could be a really crummy drawing. Those crummy are, drawings are even more fun. Yeah, the, those, are, those are actually being mapped onto uh, pre- animated geometry and so at the end of your dinner on the cruise ship you get to see your artwork marching
2: with Mickey on the screen on and the screen then diving, the diving into iconic uh, and then diving into iconic scenes with classic characters uh, right. after, after the march too. But yeah, we we took it as the the marching with Mickey was like the Sorcerer's Apprentice thing where he gets all the broomsticks marching after him. But your drawings become the things that are obeying his magic Uh, as he's wearing the Sorcerer's hat.
1: And that's truly magic for the guests because the guests like, I mean, they have to be giddy like we were when we were kids the first time we saw our own artwork come to life.
2: Right. Now, that that was a, a lesson to me in patience. Um, because I don't know if you knew this, but I actually have been trying to get that concept off the ground for over a decade. That no. is wow. probably 12 years, maybe easy. Uh, and I, my original dream for it, it, was outside of Disney. And I was just in my own life trying to start a secret life of graffiti project. And in fact, I was inspired by, we need to go into these, uh, a bathroom and you'd see like people would scribble all kinds of crazy stuff and some, uh, you know, awful stuff. But going, well, what would it be like if the person who drew it, it's like their id takes over the character when they leave the room, it comes alive and it, and it talks. So I actually had put together a whole pitch of a show that would be like an HBO adult show where it's, it's like a, a bar and people go in there and they're having conversations about social norms. And then somebody goes to use the loo and they do a drawing on the wall and have something lewd written next to it. When they leave the character comes alive and all the other characters that have been drawn there by other people that all look completely <laughs> different that's in the collective the collection they all start to have arguments with each other and you play out like social satire about whatever subject you set up and you sort of have permission to go nuts because it's not real people it's like crazy stick figures stupid things and i, I wanted to have like well dave grohl is on and with his band playing in the corner of the bar and to have him really do the drawing. I didn't want it to have our team decide what would come out of his hand. It's like, sure. I want whatever Dave draws, it's like, we just animate that. So I got in this obsession with, I want to respect your artwork. It's like, whatever you drew, I bring alive, but I don't want to read, I don't want to have somebody's interpretation of what you drew. I want to have literally what you drew. So any little character you got in like a crayon squiggle or a key scratch into paint or whatever, it's like, whatever you did, that is what comes alive. So I did experiments and I, used, I wound up finding after effects was a decent tool to bring things into. And mm-hmm. I, I, so I had been working on that and it was like, I found, I pitched it at MTV and they said, Oh, it's too smart for our, our crowd because it's it's social satire that's over their heads. And I went, oh, I could dumb it down. And then, and you know, there I had an agent that said, Oh my God, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's too raw. It's too adult. And, um, and then i had a, a another group that was taking a look at it with a, a stand up comic who would be a, a main artist that would draw some of the stuff and his things would come alive so it went through multiple things and even the blue collar comedy team uh, the the producer of that that team talked to about being uh, something that their voices could come through and so it had a bunch of different maybes. but it's just like, you know, after two years, after five years, I had friends going like, oh, are you still doing that? What? It's like, and yeah. I just, I kept going, this is, could be so fun though. There's, there's gotta be a home. So I kept it handy and I did, I did a test where I just showed a drawing and I had it talk about itself being one drawing that was being ma- manipulated in the computer. And then I mapped it into a, a scene of me holding it on the pad while it was talking. And then I throw it down on the table and have a moving camera go see it. So I had, I prepared this show and tell stuff and I got a call um, from somebody that was working on the ships and it's just, you know, trusted groups of people that I've, I've worked with over the years. And so it was a call going like, we really need like to find the magic moment here. It's like, we're cutting steel for committing. We, we always have the magic moment drive, drive everything. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have it yet. And schedule is coming up and bumping us and we need to start cutting steel and we don't have the magic moment. Please, like, do you, do you have some ideas? So I went, well, I'll come in and talk to you. And what do you got? And they said, well, the, the restaurant, it's, it will look like you're in a beautiful art deco version of an, an animation studio. It's like our old animation desk, like the beautiful version and everything. I went, how about drawings come alive? And I showed them my footage. I didn't tell them the footage was almost a Decade old, I think, that yeah. actual thing. And they were like, oh, that's cool. That's really cool. And then the next thing I did, I, I went into a Mary Poppins scene, and I, I still have this. We well, Ironically, we couldn't use it in the final because of permissions with Mary Poppins-based stuff. But my test was to take Dick Van Dyke dancing with the penguins, take all the penguins out, which was not easy at home on After Effects, but I de the scene. And then I gave my little drawing stencil to Brian Nevsky and Tom Fitzgerald and different people at the studio and said, you know, just do your drawing or have your kids do drawings or whatever. And so they sent back their drawings and I mapped them in. And like two days later, showed all their sketches dancing with Dick Van Dyke instead of the penguins. And I pumped different, Colors through the lines so it would help them show up. Anyway, uh, you know, people just sort of charmed and fell in love with it, and suddenly it had a home. And, um, you know, I, I never even looked back, but I just kept feeling like, my, you know, my first inspiration was the eclectic collection of hand-drawn graffiti that you would see on the wall. Like, that stayed alive. It's like I yeah. wanted to make sure that as people came into this Disney environment that's completely positive and charming and wonderful... It's still keeping that original idea of whatever is the the authorship of your hand is respected. Yeah. It's like whatever little squiggle you draw is that's what's going to come alive and dance with Snow White and do a tap dance showdown with Mickey and all of that. So, you know, to me, that's like um, uh, it,
1: it, it's really like a great idea is a great idea that just is waiting for the right moment, you know. And, and and that's really what this is an example of, you know. It
2: found its moment and it, it, yeah. it's, it taught me not to give up. You know, it's like we all have our idea boxes brimming with yeah. things. And it just, it teaches you, look, there's something that was over a decade, but man, when it found its home, it seemed like a perfect fit. And I so celebrate the fact that it, you know, people have that magic moment every day, like hundreds of people at a time get to have that that moment of like, that's mine. I did that. It's dancing with Mickey right now. That magic moment is, uh, that's happening now. And so it was worth all the wait. It was worth the frustration and the, you know, uh, all the years because now it's, it's just, it's home. Yeah.
1: And, and there's, there's still a lot more you can
2: do with something like that. I think. Oh, yeah. I, my, my next dream is that it becomes an AI character. And and you, you once you draw it and it comes alive, it can like hop into your phone and go home with you. That that wow. would be awesome. awesome. And to have you and for, for you to decide like, well, I want it to have my voice or I want it to have a deeper voice or a sillier voice or I want to try to have sliders to say it's more of a shy character or more of a bold character or whatever and, and let you become the lab of your own AI character. Um, so that's That's my dream. That's one of many dreams, but uh, for that particular one, that's the domino I wish would push next.
1: You know, to uh, jump back, I'm going to jump back a little bit in time because there's so, again, I want to let the audience know there's so many projects you've worked on that it's just, we can't possibly talk all about them, but I'm, I'm sort of jumping around a little bit because the back to Neverland for the Disney MGM studios back in 1989. Let's talk about that, that for, was a, for a moment, because how, how did, how did you get involved with that and how did that come about? And, uh, and uh, uh, the casting. Right and, and and before you actually go uh, into it, I'm just gonna say uh, that Back to Neverland was yes. the little opening uh, movie for the animation tour at the Disney. At the time, it was called the Disney MGM Studio. Disney MGM Studio. Now it's just the Disney Studios uh, right. tour. Right. Uh, but uh, at, when it first opened, it was the Disney MGM Studios tour, and part of that park was the animation tour, and they had a working studio where you kind of look through glass and we had we had max howard on a couple weeks ago uh oh yeah yeah we we talked about that because max was the was the studio boss down there at the at the time but but let's talk about back
2: to neverland and how that came about yeah well i i had it was just in the aftermath of the brave little toaster and so I, it, and that's a whole adventure unto itself that could, uh, you know, we could spend a lot of time on. But I, just, I was in the aftermath of that. It was, um, we had hoped it would be on the, the big movie screens. Um, Katzenberg had purposely moved up its release date on the Disney Channel, which they had been one of the investors, um, to keep it out of the theaters because uh, we were getting actually really nice reviews. And if we got into the theaters as an indie thing, it would be competitive reviews. Um, if it first was experienced on the Disney Channel, it would be Disney reviews. So it was a smart chess move on his part to move that up. Uh, but, you know, there were a lot of us that were had just made it that were uh, uh, sort of licking our wounds that we, we had dreamed of it coming out in the theater first and then, then going on to the Disney Channel where it would have a wonderful second life. And so I just I was between projects. Was just feeling sort of the the angst of that, and got a call from uh, Mark Kirkland, who uh, you know a lot of people know him from The Simpsons. I think he's directed more Simpsons episode than, than anybody else, else. Exactly. in the world. Yeah. he's a, he's an amazing guy. Anyway, he was a line producer on this show that they were doing for for the animation building at Disney MGM Studios, and that whole park was being built, and I think. You know, uh, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg were very uh, aware of how that park would play uh, because it was the first park opening under their watchful care. And so they were very involved with with every decision uh, about those parks. And so they they had been farmed out to an independent group. And Mark Kirkland was the line producer of this animated film. And he called me and he just said, you know, we're... We're nine, ten months into preparing this film for Disney and, uh, it just seems like the wind is kind of going out of the sails and we've even had Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson by, and, and they put in their two cents, but man, there's just something about that. The energy is not where it needs to be. And we, we don't want to lose this gig and we feel like it's important. Uh, and it's about Disney animation and you started your career as a Disney animator. So we figured you're a good person to, to bring in. So they said, we just, just like to show you what we're up to and get your get fresh eyes, get your two cents. So I went in purely for that. It's like, here I am. I've just been through this year and a half adventure. I just had a screening at Sundance. I'm trying to get distribution. All these things are swirling in my head. And it's like, oh, yes. And they want me to look at a thing and give an opinion. Uh, So I went in and saw. And they had uh, a lot of clever work had gone into it. There was a Carol Burnett uh, showing you around a studio. And Donald Duck was there in an animation studio. And um, there was a Siskel and Ebert. Uh, we were film critics at the time and they were talking about how many drawings per second and had, were walking around on giant cells and things like that. Um, and I, I just, I said, you know, all due respect, none of that is about what makes Disney animation special. And, uh, I sort of coined this phrase. I said, you know, it, it's something I it came out of an argument I'd had with, with the, the producer of plague dogs. Uh, he was trying to talk some of us into going up and doing rotoscope with him. And I, and his, His thing was animators should shut up and trace. Um, My thing was, it's not how you move the drawings. It's how the drawings move the audience. And animators are actors. So I said, you know, my slogan is it's not how you move drawings. It's how the drawings move the audience. Every department is the story department. You don't pick a color because it's pretty. You pick color because of what it emotionally tells you about the character right now. The camera angle is for that reason. The emotion on the character's face is for that reason. Every single department is the story department and it's not how you move the drawings. It's how they're trying to move the audience, et cetera. So I went into this big um, passionate thing about none of that is in these two projects yet. And the next morning I brought it, they said, well, let's meet again and talk in the morning. So I had written a thing that night and said, well, if I were you, I'd go get somebody like Robin Williams to be the kid in the candy store and like let him go into it and feel all these, all those emotions and prove that it's working because he feels them, and they're undeniable. And so Robin Williams was not on anybody's radar. Uh, and in fact, and I will tell you a moment about uh, Katzenberg's reaction. But in that meeting where I brought that up, Bob Rogers and George Victor and Mark Cricklin, they were sitting around the table, and they they, they listened to this, and they thought about it, and they called bob called right then in the conference room and got schneider on the line and i uh, who i hadn't met yet and it's like well you know the projects we've been working on for the last 10 months or so we're thinking of unplugging what the I'm hearing screaming on the other <laughs> <laughs> well this guy jerry Reese, Who the hell is jerry and who is they you know. <laughs> so like well he used to be an animator there so there's a lot of a lot of angst and anger and so he hangs up and goes well you've got you've got like 2 weeks to To do something to present to Peter and if it gets past him another four weeks to present to Jeffrey and I said what are you talking about I I just came by to give you an opinion and they said no you have to direct this so (laughs) it just it turned into they just shoved me in the director's chair and the first thing that was a rocky situation though was the suggestion of Robin um, that Jeffrey's point to me was not with Robin It's like he's a crotch-grabbing adult comic with substance abuse problems, not for Disney animation. Shouldn't go anywhere near Disney animation. He's fine with Touchstone. It's like, good morning, Vietnam. That's all good. We're doing that, but not animation. And so my comeback to him was, well, do you think that Pinocchio was a charming Disney film? It's like, yes. Well, what do you think about Jiminy Cricket? Do you you think he was a safe, charming, wonderful character? Oh, yes, yes. He said, well, you know, Cliff Edwards did the voice of Jiminy Cricket and his stage name was ukulele Ike and he worked blue. You could buy like dirty records. Uh, at the time <laughs> Pinocchio came out, you could go buy a dirty record from the guy that did the voice of Jimmy Cricket. And then, sadly he died an alcoholic years later, but he, you know, he had substance abuse problems. And I said, I'm not here to say I'm rocking the boat because I'm a contemporary filmmaker. I really think that this pays homage to some choices Walt made back in the day. It's like, when you see somebody with the gifts that Robin has, yeah, I think you like you cradle and treasure and nurture those. And you try to like, just shove the other ones out of the way if you can. Um, So the answer back was, you know, because of that reasoning, Okay, but only because it's kind of a lab test. It's a short. If it failed, they wouldn't be losing that much. It was away from the theaters where the family features were playing and everything. It was just in the park and uh, it was a bit more of an edgy park. So so it was like a safe way to gamble on something that would likely fail or that might fail. Um so the, you know i got got the permission and uh, then had the joy of working with Robin for that first time and going up and recording him first up in uh, the bay area and then coming back and starting animation with the team here and then then brought him a few weeks later to film the live action portions and and got to introduce him to the animators that were bringing him alive, which was super fun. Um, but how was, um, how, how was he to work with? He was so charming and warm and smart i'll tell you when i when i pitched him on the idea of walter cronkite co-starring with him in this um he launched into this whole sort of with great reverence told me the history of Cron- cronkite and how important he was to our country and to the world and the Vietnam war. And, and he's like, Oh, Cronkite, you wouldn't believe. And he goes into this whole thing. about, him, right? <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and uh, so total respect. And then I went to meet with Cronkite and uh, that was quite an adventure too. Well, it, it, it was going to be a huge entourage of people. And it wound up just being me and Walter in a giant room in New York um, with my And, wife, and, and how was how he? He was as charming and smart as you would hope he would be too. Awesome. to just the sparkle in his eye, everything I uh, uh, he his reaction to working with Robin was he said, he said, well, it'll be very interesting to work with that man. You know, it's like <laughs> just very curious, but I, I gave him a little hell. I said, you know, Walter, I used to watch the 21st century It was, I think it was a Friday night show. It was about new technology. It was hosted by Walter Cronkite. And and I said, you know, you were voted probably one of the most trusted voices in America, if not the world. And I watched your show faithfully. And you promised me in that show by 1980 I'd have a jetpack to fly to and from work. <laughs> Where's my jetpack? Yeah, you know, where are the flying cars? Where are the flying, are the flying cars? cars? So, <laughs> but I remember that episode where he talked about we'd be flying to and from work with our handy jetpacks, and um, <laughs> so anyway, he he was very good natured about everything. But they wound up together, just having such uh, uh, amazing chemistry, and they worked great together. And when I was first recording with Robin, you know, I I had to put together a, a story reel. Without Robin and Walter, so uh, I turned to Corey Burton, who's a genius, and Corey Burton did such a good job with his version of, of Robin voice and and a Cronkite, Walter Cronkite voice that I got to call Corey back and tell him that he fooled Eisner. Eisner thought I actually had gotten Robin and Walter <laughs> to record for me for the story reel. He's like, "Wow, when did you get them to record for you?" And I called Corey and no, said, "You just you just fooled the head of the company." Um, and when I showed that same reel to Robin and Walter on the set before we started shooting, just to give them context. Uh, and they were listening to their own voices, that uh, sort of via Corey coming out of the machine. Uh, as soon as it stopped and they were sitting in two director's chairs, watching this monitor and Cronkite turns to Robin, he goes, why do they need us? <laughs> uh, but, but they were just great to work with. And, and, uh, working with Robin first, just alone up in in uh, the San Francisco area. He came there with Marsha, uh, who was a wonderful sort of protector of him at the time. She was she was making sure that, you know, that he stayed on, on a good path and everything. And we wound up working later with him, of course, you, you know, working with Robin and a lot of great ideas are happening. And He was, he was so respectful though. It was, it was so interesting. He's at first, he's like, well, I hope we can play a little bit. And I I said, well, you know, I just had to write what you might say. I'm not presuming to write what I want you to say, but I had to play something for the executive. So in this whole area of storyboards, like you can totally play here and you can totally play here. I would go around and show him all the spots. He said, well, I don't want to change everything. There's some good writing here. So, you know, he had a, a respectful attitude towards stuff, but once you turned him loose, he just uh, had this amazing ability to, to take input. He would, he would want input, like, you know, what are some things you could play with? And then it would go in this quees and art mind of his and come out so fresh and so wild. And here's something that I, I did not know until working with him on the live action portion specifically. In front of the camera, in person, while he was doing those riffs, not just in front of the microphone, um, he could pop out with something that would just be delightful. In the middle of a scene. And after I called Cut, I could go, Oh, Robin, that was so funny. Can you move that middle part to the end? It would make us such a great button. He's like, Oh, sure, let's go again and you do it. And he would just effortlessly shift it around. It would sound just as improvised. He, but he would shape it on, on the next takes. And uh I, I couldn't believe that he had the facility to do that. Because of course, the impression he gives that he would give is that it was just he was just the the the, the best sense of a loose cannon. Just going berserk with crazy, fun ideas, and he had a lot of that going on. But he also had the, the shaping ability, which was just just remarkable.
1: How was how was it having them together? Was it important to have Robin and and Walter Cronkite together working uh, uh,
2: on the voices, or or you know just being in the same room together? It it. It created a wonderful chemistry. I mean, first of all, they just really did have a great chemistry, and they had a friendship that lasted beyond our shoot. Uh, When I went back to New York, uh, you know, Robin was in Waiting for Godot at Lincoln Center, and I was back to pick up some lines with him, and he talked about that he and the Cronkites had got together, and so they were continuing a, a friendship. But, you know, there was something about Walt Cronkite, and, you know, there was the Walt... Walt Disney, Walt Walter Cronkite, you know, it's like the charming, trusted host with the sparkle in his eye. And it's like, nobody can be Walt, but, you know, Walter Cronkite is another kind of sparkling eyed Walt who was just wonderful to have in the show. They, they were kind of like Uncle Walt, Uncle Walter. Yes. It's that kind of a feeling, like America's dad. You yes, know? Yeah. You're, you're exactly right, David. It's, it's that sort of trusted father figure. It's like the, the best version of the trusted dad uh, you know, is a vibe that both of them gave off, and Cronkite definitely, for real, uh, uh, in in real life and in fr- in front of the camera, it gave off that that vibe, that charming, trusted sort of thing, and wise and a little mischievous, and to have that play off of just. The, the playfulness, the giddy playfulness of Robin, and to have Walter like rein him back in for the next learning moment. And then it's like, oh, we could have fun here, blah, blah, and it goes crazy. And then it's like, you know, then he'd rein him back in. Okay, fine. Next thing we learn. And then you go on, oh, oh we're <laughs> learning something again. um And in the interviews afterwards, it was funny. Somebody asked Walter, you know, what's it like working with Robin? And he said, well, I never quite know when the man is finished Because he had to figure out during the improv. It's like, when is he done? So I said, do my next setup line. Um, but there was a thing that happened and I, I never got in on the secret. It was during the shoot. I would sometimes have them ready to come out of a place in the distance. And you know, those giant books we had mm-hmm. were not a special effect. We built gigantic books. Um, so When they come out from between the books, I actually hid them back in the cave between the two books and they would physically walk out. And so they had to wait for my call for action while we were doing the final setup back there out of sight in the shadows. And I would just hear them cracking each other up. And I, you know, the mics weren't up loud enough to where I could really hear, but I would hear this pattern of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was just like like setups and payoffs and jokes and laughs and fun they were having. And I, I never knew what they were up to, but they were having a good time together. And then it was so fun going back for re-recording lines in New York to hear that they were still getting together, having dinner and stuff it was just, uh, that was just great to hear.
1: It, it just seemed to me like such a great combination that they, they sort of played off of each other. Yeah. Uh, you know, the straight man, Walter Cronkite and, you know, the, the comedy, you know, uh, sidekick, if you will. You and, know. and
2: and comedy with heart, which is yeah, the, yeah. the the most wonderful thing. It's he, he always had that heart part to it. And um, I remember Marsha, when, when I was first doing the first recording session with him and I had recorded the, the improv section which actually franz vischer went ahead and uh and animated that scene like a lot of people wanted it and franz was very passionate about it and i'm so glad that he's he's my animator who did the that scene but that was the first time we had robin williams improv metamorphosis animation which led directly to him being considered by john and ron to be to be cast in aladdin and uh But a lot of people think the opposite. It's like, well, Aladdin was famous, therefore we put him in the short. It's like, no, that was the brave experiment of should Robin even get near Disney animation, arguing with Jeffrey, getting permission, getting him in, doing the metamorphosis animation and having people go, oh, comes the dawn, that could be the genie. Metamorphosis change, it's like, that's the genie. And Uh, and I was going
1: to say, you can't even think of Aladdin without you know uh, you, you can't think of the genie in Aladdin and 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 think of anyone else that could have
2: done that role right and, and 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 it it's even though we were the much smaller thing it's 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 just a pleasure for all of us on that little team that we were the domino we were the little domino that knocked over the big domino <laughs> of Aladdin and uh, you know John and Ron it was the sweetest thing they told us that we we're on the original crew of back to Neverland they said you know Aladdin is, is this movie because of the you know the paving the way that you guys did with Robin and improv and, and letting us see it happen and letting the studio know that it would be beloved by the by the audience. And so we've put a permanent thank you to your short film in the feature. And uh, so they invited us to the premiere of, of Aladdin and you know, I'm looking for it for the first seven, eight minutes, and then I just forget about it. And at the end, when the genie gets his freedom one of his zaps from the future back to to their time he's wearing a goofy hat a tourist shirt camera um that was exactly the same outfit that my live action robin was wearing in the crowd when cronkite asks you sir could you help us and then pulls a volunteer out of the crowd it's Sorry. like robin was dressed exactly like that and so for you know, for uh, anybody, like, you can win a bet at a cocktail party if you know that little piece of trivia that the genie's costume is a permanent think of the hat, a tip of the hat thank you to, uh, to Back to Neverland. And if you bring up those frames, it's like, yep, Robin Williams live action, genie. Animation, same
1: costume. <laughs> yeah, that that's so awesome. And you know, again, another wonderful example of just these little insider things that get put into these films and right. have been, uh, you know, uh, like a uh, one thirteen uh, in in all yeah. the Pixar films. You know, it's a, well, I started that on Little toaster. Right, that's right. I, I, the apartment absolutely.
2: they
1: get to is a one thirteen in the city. And, and you know something, uh, I. I there's so much more to talk about. I, I know we're running a little bit long, but I do want to touch on one thing, and I want to jump further back in time to Cal Arts because right. of the fact that you were part of the that that sort of. Famous class of uh, Brad Bird and John Musker, and I think Tim Burton was up there. And Tim actually
2: was a year later, but yeah, but but mm-hmm. you know yep. that
1: time period really, yep. you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, they they went ahead and did uh, a feature article in Vanity Fair in 2014. Yes. And, uh, called the class that roared. Yes. And, uh, the photos were were taken by Annie Lieberwitz.
2: uh We want to just touch yes on that for a minute because it was pretty amazing. And I well, I nearly deleted that email from Annie Leibovitz because I thought for sure that was not a real thing. <laughs> Annie Leibovitz, requests your presence. Yeah, right. It's I thought it was some kind of hack fundraiser thing.
1: And a prince in Nigeria wants a million dollars.
2: I swear I almost hit delete. And then I just went, Well, I have all these Annie Leibowitz books on my shelf of, you know, for amazing photography. And I thought, well, I I wonder what she or her company have to say, I I figured it was an advertisement. I had no idea it was anything personal, but I opened it up and it was the real thing. It was, you know, you were TA for year one of CalArts Character Animation Program. We're doing an article about what that class went on to do over the years. And so many things have been born there, so much creativity and um, we request a whole group of you to come be photographed in your old classroom in the A113 classroom. By Annie, and it's it's sort of a it's crazy because it's such a nondescript sort of dumpy classroom, mm. but the fact that you'd have this world-renowned photographer go to photograph us in this you know it's crappy little room where a lot of magic was born, just uh, it became such a, a a wonderful reunion then, and so we we went out and and did that, and that was it was a real celebration and so fun to see each other again, but I must say it was it was a crazier day than it might seem like because. At the, at the start of that day, all of us received emails, emails saying, don't show up on the correct time. Everything's been delayed. Annie, Annie was on an airplane this morning. The gantry caught fire. They had to <laughs> abandon the airplane. So she's going to be delayed. Uh, so do not show up at the preordained time. Come like three hours later. But in the meantime, give me your height and weight. And hair color and I like this whole thing. Like, oh, okay. So what happened was they took that information from us and they started like casting extras to come in and sit for us. So Annie was delayed in New York and they were sending her photographs of people sitting in for us in the classroom. And she was like having them juggle around I'll have. Brad move over here, have Tim move over there, have Jerry move over here, have every, you know, and it was all our stand-ins. Uh, so we finally, so she arrives late, we arrive late, and we walk in, and I was walking in with somebody, at, and uh, she, oh, it was uh, Leslie Margolin, and she wasn't hip to how all of that was working. So when we walk into our old classroom, there's all these people silently posing, just filled with people. Everything you saw in the, in the final photograph, it's that, but with people we've never seen before who are all just very quiet. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, what is this? And I said, it's us, Leslie, find yourself <laughs> like, which one is you? Um, so then, you know, she started swapping us out the real person for the stand-in and, and I, I took a lot of pictures, you know, I, in the picture, you see I'm sitting up on the, on top of a desk on the shelves, um, uh, And I I was just taking a lot of pictures with my phone uh, of Annie as she was setting up to work. And pretty soon she's like, oh, I think she's actually photographing us. It's probably rude of me to be photographing her with my phone while she's photographing us. So I put my phone away. But I have some cool sort of blurry point of view things from up on top of that desk during the, the Annie Leibovitz shoot. But yeah, that was... You know, it was a celebration of that, uh, the guinea pig groups that came out there. We, we went out there in that first year in 75 and we were the odd people at the school. We were the sellouts. Uh, <laughs> the people at the school were like, oh, these corporate types coming in. They actually want jobs <laughs> at an animation studio. Whoops. Well, all yeah. <laughs> The the one thing that
1: I I was uh I really enjoyed looking at in that article mm-hmm. was the photo from 1976 that was taken with Elmer Plummer. Uh yeah. and I I have very fond memories of Elmer Plummer. He was my life drawing teacher when I got to Cal Arts. And yep. I actually have a watercolor by by Elmer. Nice. Uh, and, and it was part of my collection here, but uh I have to say I love that photograph because, you know, Joe Lens in there you're in there yeah. john, young john musker uh mike sedino uh i mean it's just really kind of
2: amazing it looks like it's uh, the guinea pigs yeah yeah
1: I, i'm trying to think if that's kathy Zelinski or not uh no or, that's no that
2: uh nancy beeman and Leslie oh is that that, that is
1: nancy beeman yeah 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 you're right absolutely you know we had her on the show right right <laughs> yeah and uh, a, a, a wonderful photograph, and and just so many memories when I look at that picture because of Elmer. And I, you
2: know, I I did the TLC cleanup of that. Mo- the high resolution version that's out there that most people see now is was it was a print that uh, Harry Saban I think had yes taken the original picture yeah. and he gave us all glossies like you know. Eight and a half by eleven glossies or something. And so I scanned mine a number of years ago and went in and carefully manually de-dusted and everything. And so I would see these crappy versions that would go out of that photograph. So I I started sending my high-res clean scan out to people. And and it's because I, you know, I cared about the group and about the photo. I went, I oh, want a nice version out there. Yeah, no, but absolutely. Yeah. I mean Elmer and that and that room, the A113. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, when you were talking earlier and mentioned that, you know, it was sort of a nondescript room. I mean, it's basically a cinder block room painted white.
2: Yeah. You uh-huh.
1: know, I mean that that that's it. You know, Which well, listen, doesn't get any cleaner uh, over the years. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really doesn't. Um, Jerry, we're we're running so long here. I I want to have you back on the show, uh, and I want to talk about you know some of these different projects because there's, there's <laughs> we just only so missed m- about twenty. <laughs> well, at least at least twenty. You know, because there's just so many of them. I mean, just honestly to give to give the audience you know just a a little bit of a a taste of it i mean canada far and wide you know for epcot star Mm -hmm. tours soaring fantastic flight guardians of the galaxy the iron man experience mystic manor over in uh, hong kong disneyland Uh, we talked about animation magic oh canada for epcot i mean disneyland's the fifth the first 50 magical years i mean it rock and roller roller coaster i mean i mean I mean i've been on that you know. yes. uh, i wore the shirt sounds, sounds dangerous <laughs> dinosaur i mean it just goes on and on and uh we we are absolutely going to have you back on the show because you're such a wealth of knowledge i i mean we could do a whole show just on toaster you know that That's,
2: uh, uh it's true and uh, you know there have been some wonderful uh people with podcasts that have have chosen specific subjects and want to dig in. And so, but I'm gay for any of it. It's like, yeah, big just free ranging discussion or specific things. It's all, it's all good. So
1: as far as I'm concerned, we are going to have you back, uh, in in five or six months and we're going to focus in on a couple specific projects, but I really I I just so enjoyed sitting here and listening to your stories and listening to your philosophy about animation, which to me is is a huge part of it. It's the passion that that so many of our
2: colleagues have, uh, and that's deep rooted in all of us as artists. Yeah, and I I think that's the key to the emerging technologies. Like I have one solid eye on the next 10 years, the next decade of what's just being born. And I I think it's so critical that people that are building those systems are thinking about story, character, and emotion, individuality of character, uh, how to to make the illusion of life happen. Because there's going to be more of that needed than ever in these big immersive experiences with AI characters and everything. It's like, unless you've dug in and had the philosophy drive the birth of all of that then you're gonna have a lot of triage and a lot of stuff to come in and fix things that are zombie-like creepy uh experiences that could have been magical so we, we we're trying to make sure that the first draft is as magical as possible
1: absolutely well thank you jerry for being on the skull rock podcast we look forward to talking to you again soon
2: thanks for having me glad to be here look forward to seeing you again some real user power
0: your weekly immersion into all things disney wow man we could talk forever
1: you know know, we're like i said al john I, i always say this we're gonna have jerry reese back on the show again uh you know probably after the holidays or something but we we have so much more to talk about with him and and just getting his thoughts and, and hearing these behind the scenes stories. I, I, I just love talking uh, to our guests about this kind of stuff. And Jerry's so articulate and such a, a brilliant uh, director and writer artist. I mean, it's just such a pleasure having him on the show.
0: Absolutely. And what I love is the fact of the whole A113, you know, Easter egg that you put in Brave Little Toaster and then, you know, looking at his website, by the way, which you can, uh, jerryreese.com, you can see the original cast, the original gang of Cal Arts in that photo. And then to fast forward to the whole, you know, um, you know, Leibovitz photo that Ann yeah. did uh, uh, of, of everybody there it was really cool to kind of see yeah, everybody. And,
1: and the Annie Leibovitz photo really encompasses, you know, many different years at uh, uh, CalArts, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, with a lot of different, uh, they weren't all in the same class, that that photo, but uh, it's, they're all products of the, the Disney uh, character animation and experimental
0: animation programs. Yeah, I'm going to just Photoshop your head. Um, somewhere behind the bookcases. No, please don't do that.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look it over, and but we could talk no. all about that. But once again, what an awesome podcast, and and we do appreciate everybody listening to the show because it, it's because of you that we continue to put this content up there and document all of these wonderful creators, filmmakers, and animators throughout time. Once again, if you love Disney and pop culture, don't forget to subscribe to the show if you just stumbled upon us. We're available on every one of the major podcast platforms and send us those emails because we really do appreciate it. Dave at com or John at com. And I know that we've got amazing guests on the way. Dave, you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah,
1: him? absolutely. Next week, Al John, we've got Bruce Lenoyle, who's a voiceover artist and Muppeteer. We are going to be talking about... Uh, the Muppets. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, voice acting for animation. I, I, I love Bruce. I've worked with him many times over the years on a bunch of different projects. So I'm looking forward to having him. And I would just say to everybody, got a new week ahead. Go out, be positive. Peace and love to everybody, and just ha- be kind to one another as the country's opening up. And enjoy the week. We'll see you next time around on Skull Rock Podcast.
0: I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast. Here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel. Vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise? Disney park trip adventures by Disney.
2: They can contact me at
0: theme parks and at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie and theme park fan. I'm Al John go. I'm the husband. Who's also Disney star Wars and Marvel comics fan. And together we host a Disney list podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney List podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.